1 Kings, chapter 11, verses 1 to 13. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Shemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives, who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son, yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem which I have chosen. Well, thank you for giving up your lunch hour to be here for the third in our series on Solomon, the world's richest man. Um, We calculated two weeks ago his income was a billion pounds a year. He was internationally famous for his wisdom. And yet in this chapter we find that he was perhaps the most foolish of all rulers. I think it's quite a shocking reading and probably everybody here is slightly unsettled by it. If you're here as a a non-believer, you're not a Christian, you're probably shocked at how exclusive and narrow is the Bible when it comes to other religions. It might be that many in our society, I guess, would applaud Solomon's um, behaviour building different temples for each of his wives to follow whatever faith they happen to prefer. And he takes this um, very broad attitude to religion, which in our age would be applauded. And in the passage, it is not applauded, but it is condemned. Maybe you're unsettled by just how narrow and exclusive the Bible is. Um, Of course, the Bible isn't multi-faith, and Jesus wasn't a pluralist. Famously, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except by me. Only one truth, only one way to heaven. That absolutely flies in the face, doesn't it, of our, the spirit of our age, which says that each person must choose the path that is right for him or her um, and tolerate the other. <clears throat> Myself, I've always been slightly suspicious of the idea, though, that all religions are simultaneously true and just a simple exploration of the facts. For example, um, the death of Jesus Christ. Christianity teaches that Jesus died and that his death on the cross was at the centre of his plans to save the world. Whereas Islam teaches that Jesus was a prophet and did not die on a cross because it would have been unthinkable that Allah should allow his divine prophet to suffer in this way. Instead, the Quran teaches that there was a case of mistaken identity um, and that it was not Jesus who was executed, but one who looked like him. <coughs> well, either Jesus died or he didn't die, <coughs> but certain, <coughs> pardon me, certainly, both are not true. Um, there is an either or when it comes to history. Something happened, um, something else didn't happen. Um, people sometimes say that the, um, whichever way you want to take to heaven is, is equally valid. It's a bit like um, different trains that all go in the same um, place and you can go only when you like. And I think it's a good analogy because if you go to Waterloo, as I'm going to do later this afternoon, all the trains at least look like they're pointing in the same direction on the platform but actually they're not going to the same place. Um, in Buddhism, we're heading for nirvana, to an emptiness um, and a nothingness. Um, in, Christ in Hinduism, we're heading for re reincarnation as we loop around again and again. According to Jesus, we're heading for a judgment day when we meet him on his throne and he decides our eternal destiny um, in the new creation or in hell. And they can't all be true because they're so different. And here, this policy of tolerating every religion is not one that God himself tolerates. The first of the commandments, of course, you will have no other gods except me. Um, and God is offended because he is the only true God. He is the only creator of the world. And the detestable God of um, the Moabites um, or of the Ammonites, um, they didn't make the world. They are human inventions, and God is offended at them receiving worship due to him. Maybe that is a surprise and a shock to you, but I think others of us are shocked that Solomon could be so foolish, because if you are a Christian, it's not obvious that in a few years' time you would begin to um, turn away from uh, the true God and instead to become a Buddhist or a Hindu um, or to become a Molech worshipper. You think, how does he get from A to B? And the answer is, he gets from A to B by an extraordinary number of weddings. 700 wives, 300 concubines. I did the calculation. I think that works out as, if you averaged it out across his life, that's one wedding every three weeks. Um, I guess, you know, there would be economies of scale, wouldn't there? So you'd have a contract with the florist and you say to the organist, I'll, I'll have my usual, please, to go down the aisle. I mean, that, he gets quite good at it, but it, it does make the mind slightly boggle. But the problem is that these are wives from nations, verse 2, concerning which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, because they will surely turn your hearts 
after their gods. What we've got in this passage is two different sins of King Solomon. And one of them that seems huge for us. He turns away from the Lord um, and builds a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab. Uh, Chemosh is one of those gods who demanded child sacrifice to appease him. Uh, a hideous um, piece of paganism. For Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. This is an extraordinary evil that Solomon should make room for such pagan religion. And then there's the seemingly much lesser matter, uh, or at least seemingly to us, much lesser matter of who he decides to sleep with and to share his life with privately. And it's one of my great sadnesses, just reading um, of some of the business of, of Westminster, that this separation between the public and the private is uh, increasingly accepted. Uh, this is just uh, my own family life, this is my public life. And we might think, Solomon, who you marry is your own business, and yet what you do as king um, in leading a nation astray is national business. But in this chapter, we see that the one leads to the other, as if there are two dominoes uh, side by side, and when one topples, the other will inevitably topple. Maybe we can't see how we would turn aside from worshipping the true God to other religion or to paganism. But probably all of us can see how we could make compromises in our personal life. Um, compromises sexually, compromises in relationships. And here in this passage, God warns Solomon that the one will lead to the other. Just look again at verse 2. The Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your heart after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon did marry them. Verse 4, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. You see how it works? There's a warning from God. If you do X, then Y will follow. And Solomon doesn't heed the warning. He does X. And then sure enough, Y follows. Exactly what God had warned is the consequence. And you ask yourself, why was it that Solomon didn't heed the warning? And I guess probably he thought he was stronger than that. No, 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 it, it will be okay, Lord. I, I know the danger. I mean, sure, I know that um, Penelope is a, uh, is a Moloch worshipper, and I know Moloch is detestable because he demands um, child sacrifice, but Penelope's lovely, and you know, she said she doesn't mind that I'm a worshipper of the true God, and I'm sure that this will be fine. It's just a private family matter, after all. Um, I'm sure it won't lead to anything more serious. Even though God had warned. And we are in peril if we reject the warning that stands in the way of further consequences. There's an echo, isn't there, of the, of the Garden of Eden? Um, a warning. You shall not eat of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, for if you do, on the day you eat of it, you will die. Um, a warning. Oh, it can't be that serious. And so they do. And so they die. Um, hear a warning, and yet he does, and so his heart is turned away. 
Later in the Bible, in the book of Nehemiah, um, the prophet Nehemiah discovers once again that the Israelites, the people of God, have intermarried with people from other religions and turned away to follow their gods. And he is very, very upset. In fact, it happens almost the same in the book of Ezra and in the book of Nehemiah, but you get a little insight into the different characters of these two prophets, because when Ezra discovers it, he's so upset that he pulls out his hair. And when Nehemiah discovers it, he is so upset that he pulls out their hair. <laughs> Slightly different approach um, to being upset. But Nehemiah warns them, he says, did not even Solomon sin on account of such women? Um, although he was the wisest of anybody who'd ever lived, yet even his heart was turned astray. Well, Solomon does it on a massive scale, 700 wives. But the Lord has said, do not do it. And yet notice, verse 4, it was only when he was old that it started to go wrong. Uh, I guess the marriages, all the way through his life, you'd have to do that in order to fit them all in, wouldn't you? And yet the consequences come later. And I wonder whether that gives him the opportunity to say, no, it's been fine. I mean, God warned me, but it really is fine. Look, I've managed to marry all these ladies and still I'm devoted to the Lord. And yet he's sowing the seeds, he's storing up trouble for later. And it is terrible trouble. Because the king of God's people, he was meant to lead them in worship only of him, now turns aside. And the Lord is very, very angry. Verse 11, since this is your attitude... You have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you. I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. As we read on the story, we're only one generation away from a civil war as the kingdom is torn in half. And the land of Judah um, to the south, the land of Israel to the north. And uh, much conflict between them through the next generations is it is a disaster when a king, when a leader, when a government fails to lead people in worship of the one true God. And yet, wonderfully in this passage, there is a nevertheless, verse 12, nevertheless, I won't do it in your lifetime, nevertheless, I won't tear the whole kingdom away, but I will keep one tribe for the sake of David my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. God made a wonderful promise to David, Solomon's father. And he said to David that the kingdom of David would be established forever. It's a wonderful promise, but it's really coming into conflict here because we've got a king who is jeopardising the entire thing. God promises an eternal kingdom, and Solomon almost unravels the whole thing. Yet God's promises are never broken. And he says, for the sake of David, even though you brought disaster, I'm going to keep one tribe. And of course, from that one tribe, he's born another king, and who we call the son of David. A very, very wise king. The one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus who never toppled the first domino. Who never made the compromises in the small ways who never went down the slippery slope that would store up trouble for the future, but whose heart was always fully devoted to the Lord his God. And he is the only king who can secure our future. 
He's the only king who can bring about this eternal kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we're sorry for our foolishness when we don't heed your warnings, when we think that we can play close to the edge, when we don't believe you that the small compromises, the private life compromises, will lead to the the compromises in national life and even a wholesale abandoning of you and your ways. Father, help us to take your word seriously and to flee from sin. And we praise you, Father, that, that our king ultimately is not... King Solomon, um, or even our own government, but our ultimate king is the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you he never compromised. And thank you that in his hands your kingdom is safe. Help us to trust him and to follow him with integrity. For Jesus' sake. Amen.